Welcome to The Crime Reporter. I'm Mara S. Campo. I'm a journalist and I've covered a lot of crime over the years. And I wanted to take this space to answer some of the most compelling questions about some of the most compelling crimes I've ever covered or come across. Today I want to share the story of Karina Vetrano. Karina was murdered senselessly in a brutal act of violence. She was a young woman with a very bright future ahead of her, and her murder made national headlines. But then there were so many twists and turns that followed that this case continued to stay in the news for years all the way through the end of the trial. It really is one of the most fascinating and heartbreaking stories that I have ever covered. Before we get to that, I would love if you would consider making a contribution using the Patreon link in the description. Reporting and researching is extremely time-consuming and labor-intensive work, but it has always been really important to me to shed light on these stories. And I have to guess, if you're watching or listening, it's important to you too. Your contributions are greatly appreciated and they are what make this show possible. Also, please subscribe and follow me on social media platforms. I am at Mara S. Campo. And now to the story of Karina Vetrano. So let's start with what's always the most important question. Who is the victim? Who is the person who had their life and their future stolen from them and from their families? Karina Vetrano was a 30-year-old woman who was murdered in 2016. She worked as a speech pathologist for kids with autism in New York. She was also an avid runner. She was really into fitness. She was often posting fitness photos on social media. And it's also worth noting that she was very petite. She was under five feet tall. She was about 4'11". Karina lived with her parents in Howard Beach, New York, and her father is a retired firefighter in New York City. He was actually one of the first responders during the September 11th terrorist attacks in 2001. Now, her father and Howard Beach are actually important parts of this story, so we'll get to that in a second. So now to the what. What happened to Karina Vetrano? As I mentioned, Karina was very into fitness, and on August 2nd, 2016, she left her home to go for a run. Now, here's where her father first starts to come into play. She normally ran with her father, but on that day, he had a back injury, so he did not go with her. She never ran alone, but that day she did. She was headed to Spring Creek Park, which is about a block from her home, and she was running around 5 in the afternoon. This is the last known footage of her, which was found by Crime Watch Daily. And as you can see, because it was summer, it was still very bright. It was broad daylight. She shouldn't have been gone for very long. She wasn't going very far from home, but hours went by. So her parents, understandably, called and texted and called and texted, and they did not hear back from her. And this is where they really started to worry. This is when her father reached out to a neighbor and a friend who was a police officer, and they organized a search party. Now, most people don't have police officers that they can just call directly to help them with something like this. But again, because her father had worked as a first responder, he had those connections in the neighborhood. 
So they were able to do something that very few people are able to do. They were able to pull together a search party almost immediately. It can take days or weeks to get the resources and the people and the knowledge to execute a search for someone who's missing. But in this case, Karina's family knew exactly what to do. They had the contacts to do it, and they were able to put a search party together almost immediately and start looking for her. And that's when they made a terrible terrible discovery. Around 11 p.m., about six hours after she left home for her run, Karina's father found her body. He found her just a few feet off the running trail. She had been dragged into the weeds, and the condition that he found her in was, was really horrifying. The details of this crime are, frankly, I think everyone's worst nightmare. This is the reason a lot of women don't actually go running, because they fear something like this could happen. The details are really disturbing, so if you want to protect your peace and you don't want to hear them, skip ahead to the next chapter marker and we'll pick up the story there. So how? How was Karina killed? Investigators say that Karina was struck in the back of the head with a rock and then she was dragged into the weeds where she was sexually assaulted. According to expert testimony at her trial, when her body was found, she was partially undressed. Uh, her sports bra was moved to the side. Her shorts were partially taken off and she was left there in that condition. This was an extremely violent attack. Karina was left with scratches and bruises on her right leg. She cracked a tooth, presumably from biting her attacker, and then she was strangled to death reportedly so hard that a handprint was found around her throat. But before she died, she did fight. She scratched her attacker repeatedly, and some of that DNA evidence would come into play later. Now, this was the condition that her father found her in. It's awful enough to think about something like this happening to your loved one, but it's unthinkable that you would be the one to make that discovery. When her father made that discovery, he reportedly fell to the ground and cradled her body and cried. Now that detail actually will become very relevant in the context of the trial. So now to the why. Why was Karina killed? And that's where we get into the investigation. An autopsy confirmed the cause of death as strangulation, and the case started to get a lot of media attention because you have this young woman who is senselessly killed while she's out for a run. At the time, there had also been another very similar murder in another state, so there were questions about whether these two may have been related. It turns out that they weren't. In part, because of the media attention, the case got a lot of law enforcement resources. And as an aside, that's one of the reasons that media attention is so important, because it often puts pressure on law enforcement to solve the case. They put a lot of resources behind it. Often the reward money is higher, and sometimes it can even lead to other agencies like state agencies or federal agencies coming in to help solve the case because it's getting so much attention. And that's exactly what happened here. Dozens of detectives were initially assigned to this case, and they started collecting DNA from hundreds of men. 
Now, there was no evidence at this point as to what the race of Karina's attacker may have been, yet more than 300 black men were reportedly swabbed for DNA. And this is particularly notable because the crime took place in Howard Beach. Now, remember, I said that Howard Beach was going to come into play, and this is why. There's some history here. So Howard Beach is a neighborhood in Queens, New York. Queens is a borough of New York City. Howard Beach is about 75% white. It has a very large Italian-American population. And Howard Beach is also where two very high-profile anti-black crimes took place. In 1986, a group of black men were walking through Howard Beach after their car broke down nearby. They were looking for help, and they were confronted by a group of white teens who were yelling racial slurs and telling them to leave Howard Beach. That group of teens then attacked these men as they left a pizza parlor later that evening. Two of them were severely beaten and one of them was chased onto a highway. He ran into the highway trying to get away from these attackers and he was hit and killed by a car. And in 2005, three black men were beaten by a group of white men with baseball bats in Howard Beach. One of the victims was beaten so severely that he had to be hospitalized. So that's just a little bit of context and history about Howard Beach, where now Karina Vitrano's murder investigation seems to be focused on black men. Yet and still, six months go by, and even with all of the resources and all of the media attention, there are no developments. Investigators have nothing. Then, a detective says that he remembers, out of the blue, reports of a suspicious man roaming around Howard Beach, and he decides to see if he can find a name. Now, I actually covered this story briefly at the time that it was taking place, and this officer says that he looked through old citations, he found the name and the address of the man that he remembered had been roaming about Howard Beach, and then he set out to find him. That tip leads detectives to a housing project in East New York. Now, East New York is in Brooklyn, Howard Beach is in Queens, but they're right next to each other. They're adjacent. They're about three miles apart, but they are a world away in every other sense. East New York has one of the highest crime rates in the city. More gun violence in the city, this time at a deli in East New York, Brooklyn. This one in East New York, Brooklyn, left two men dead and three others injured. A 17-year-old girl was found shot in the lobby of a building in East New York. And in fact, there was a police show about it called East New York that ran for one season. Welcome to East New York. The man that detectives are looking for lives in East New York, and his name is Channel Lewis. Channel Lewis is a 20-year-old black man, the son of immigrants, who at the time was living with his mother, his sisters, and their kids. He also, by most accounts, is mentally disabled. He attended a school for adults with special needs, and he had no criminal record. They believe that my son is helpless. My son is not a murderer. My son would never kill this young lady. When police showed up at Channel Lewis's door, they say that he voluntarily gave them a DNA swab. That was on a Thursday. On Saturday, he was taken into custody. And on Sunday, he was arrested and charged with Karina's murder. So what led police to believe that they had their guy? And how did they make that determination so quickly? Let's look at some of the evidence. 
Well, first, there's the DNA. As I mentioned, Karina fought ferociously for her life, and she gave investigators a tremendous gift in trying to find her killer. There was a lot of DNA that was left under her fingernails, and police say that the swab that Channel Lewis gave them matched the DNA that they found. They also say that they learned some information that seemed very suspicious. They say that Channel's mother told them that on the night of August 2nd, that's the night Karina was murdered, Channel came home looking disheveled, and he said that he had been mugged. The next day, his father took him to the hospital to be treated for injuries that he sustained while he said he had been mugged. He was taken to the hospital and treated for injuries, including some cuts and scratches on his face and chest. And while he didn't have a criminal record, police say that there was evidence that he had thoughts of violence towards women. And that in 2011, he had told a principal that he wanted to, quote, stab and kill his female classmates. So all of that, of course, very compelling evidence. But the biggest piece of evidence was the videotaped confession. About how many times did you hit her in the face? Around five. Was she still moving when you had your hands around her neck? Oh, yeah, and then she jumped into the water. After that, she was just lying there. Now, this seems like a solid case, slam dunk, right? But right from the beginning, there were a lot of questions about this evidence. And wait until you hear how that played out at the trial. So here are some of the questions that people had about the evidence. First was the confession. This was a 12-hour interrogation. And remember, Channel is reportedly mentally disabled. So many have argued that the confession very likely could have been coerced. Second, in the confession, he admitted to killing Karina, but he vehemently denied the sexual assault. So why would he admit to one part of the crime and not the other. Third, in his confession, he got the cause of death wrong. He said that Karina drowned in a nearby puddle, but of course we know that the cause of death was strangulation. So what will a jury think of all this? Will the confession be enough to convince them? Will the family get justice? Is this the right guy? More than two years after Karina's murder, the case finally went to trial. And prosecutors were very confident about this case. They had a lot of really solid evidence. There was the DNA. There was the videotaped confession. There was Phil Vitrano, Karina's father's really emotional testimony about what he saw and experienced. There were the injuries that Channel Lewis was treated for at the hospital the day after Karina's murder. There were reports that he wanted to harm women that he went to school with. So prosecutors made their case. The case went to the jury. They deliberated for 13 hours and they came back with a shocking result. The jury was deadlocked. They had questions about the DNA, specifically had it been contaminated when Phil Vitrano knelt by his daughter's lifeless body, picked her up, cradled her, and cried after making that awful discovery. And they didn't have a lot of faith in the confession. They thought it was plausible that after 12 hours, Shanna Lewis just wanted to go home and said whatever he had to say to get out of that room. So the judge had no choice but to declare a mistrial. 
Well, prosecutors decided to retry the case, and that is not always a given. A trial requires a lot of resources, and sometimes prosecutors will decide to just cut their losses. If they couldn't make it stick the first time, is it worth it to try again? Well, in this case, they decided that it was. In the spring of 2019, almost three years after Karina was murdered, Channel Lewis was back in court facing a jury for the second time. Again, both sides painstakingly made their cases. Again, they turned it over to the jury. When defense attorneys returned to their offices as the jury deliberated, they made a bombshell discovery. I can't remember ever hearing of something like this happening during a trial. An anonymous letter had been left for them in an unmarked envelope, making explosive claims about the investigation. It was a three-page type letter, allegedly from a law enforcement source, that said that in the early days of the investigation, police had stated on several occasions that they were looking for, quote, two jacked-up white guys from Howard Beach. The letter also claims that the detectives who were assigned to the case didn't themselves even believe that Channel Lewis was responsible for this murder because he was, quote, too dim-witted and puny to have done it. So defense attorneys took the letter to the judge and they demanded a mistrial. Well, the judge did not grant a mistrial and jurors went on to deliberations. But in deliberations, a different drama was unfolding. A juror affidavit filed after the case shared details about alleged juror misconduct that took place during the deliberations. Reportedly, the jurors who believed that Lewis was guilty were bullying those who didn't. One juror's written request to see additional evidence was reportedly ripped up by another juror who didn't want to stay late. And another juror reportedly shut down all debate about the sexual assault because she herself was a sexual assault survivor. So that part of the case, allegedly, is not something that jurors even discussed. Now, these were clearly very tense jury deliberations, but after five hours, they did come back with a verdict. The jury's verdict? Guilty. They found Channel Lewis guilty on all counts. He was convicted of three counts of murder and one count of sexual abuse. Weeks later, Channel Lewis was sentenced to life without parole, and Karina's family was jubilant. Your child, your thoughts. Tell us what's going through your mind right now. Ju jubilation. To finally get justice. And Channel Lewis spoke as well. Moments before being led out of the court, this is what he said. Quote, I'm innocent. I'm sorry for the family's loss, but I didn't do this. So Karina's family is able to move forward with the peace that comes from receiving justice for your loved one. But there are a lot of people that to this day still question whether the right person was convicted for this terrible crime. Thank you for watching this video. Please like and subscribe. If there are cases that you're familiar with, stories that you've heard that you have questions about, please leave them in the comments and I'm happy to look into them. And again, your contributions to this work are so important. They are what allow me to continue to do it. So please consider going to the Patreon link and leaving a donation.